Well, as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about this year, um, and every time I think of the resurrection, I always go back to the same book again and again. And no, it's not one of the Gospels. It's always 1 Corinthians 15. Because it's so easy. It's, 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 if you want to crash course in the resurrection, that's probably the best place to get it. It just outlines everything so beautifully, Paul, when he writes that chapter. And um, today I wanted to look at the uh, the last five verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, that's kind of going to be my text, but really I'm going to be probably all over the place. So, you know, I may or may not wait for you to turn in your scriptures there, but just uh, bear with me uh, as we explore other books uh, within the New Testament. I thought we'd start by uh, by reading, and then after we're finished reading, you can all be seated. So let's start in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men most to be pitied. You may be seated. As I was looking over that passage and kind of asking the Lord, well, where, where should I go? How should I look at this? I just felt like this is the passage I needed to discuss. It came to me that there are a lot of implications when you think about the resurrection. And I wanted to talk about the necessity of the resurrection. So if that, I believe that was the title of my message. Yes, it was. So that's what we're gonna, we're gonna talk about. And I found about five key points because of the resurrection, what we have. Because of the resurrection, we have efficacy of preaching. We have the truth of the gospel. We have forgiveness of sins. We have efficacy of faith. We have hope. And I'm going to try to go into all of those points a little bit more. Well, to start, because of the resurrection, we actually have the complete gospel. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the complete gospel. And that means we actually have something to preach about. We actually have something that is powerful, something that matters for eternity. If you don't have the resurrection, the entire foundation of Christian preaching is destroyed. There's no gospel message. Our faith is in something false and powerless. Everything you hear from the pulpit is useless. It doesn't amount to anything. Why did we even bother to get up here this morning on to come here this early? The apostles are liars. Your church leaders are all liars. Martyrs throughout history, they've died for a lie. We have no hope without the gospel. We're lost, hell-doomed sinners. We can't be delivered from the power of death. Uh, there's no hope. If you claim to know forgiveness apart from Christ's death and resurrection, you're deceived at best, and at worst, you're a liar. Um, those saints that have died before us did not inherit eternal life. There's no hope for those that have died in Christ. They remain dead. They haven't been delivered for their sins. We're preaching a legalism 
without the resurrection, that is meaningless and futile. It's better to just eat, drink, and be merry, because this life is all there is. And why would any human being want to submit to a Messiah that has no power to deliver us from our sins and give us eternal life? So you can see here how the resurrection is necessary for the efficacy of our preaching. It's necessary, as I've already stated, and this is obvious, for the truth of the gospel. I'm going to go to 1 Peter 1, verse 25, and that says, But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. The gospel obviously is contained in the word of God, and the word of the Lord endures forever. So the gospel is everlasting. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 Jesus here is also speaking about the resurrection, and he says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is laying it on the line. He's telling everybody the time is now, not later, now. It's time to change your inner self. Repent. Change your old ways of thinking. That means regretting, turning from past sins, living your life in a way that proves repentance. And I'm not saying a work salvation, but a, a, a type of action that's a natural outgrowth of your regeneration from within. You're living to serve and to glorify God. And Jesus is telling everybody to believe. And this command, is, it's, it means a deep abiding trust in Christ for salvation It's not a call just to believe certain facts about Christ. Uh, As it says in James 2.19, even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons probably know more doctrine than all of us elders put together and could probably talk circles around us. The difference between us and them is that they reject God where we have not. And in responding to obedience, Ephesians 2.10 talks about how we were predestined for good works beforehand after we've been chosen whether when it's grace through faith but the works are a natural outgrowth of our regeneration because of the gospel or the resurrection we have forgiveness of sins it's our sin that keeps us hopelessly and forever separated from god first john 3 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins And in him, there is no sin. So Christ was manifested to take away sin. And to sin is to contradict the work of Christ. Sin and Christ are obviously incompatible. He died to sanctify us. And this knowledge ought to be deep and effectual in the life of any believer. And it is his blood that cleanses us and redeems us from sin. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So through Christ we have deliverance and salvation from sin. His blood has paid the penalty. It's the riches of his grace devoid of any human merit. Nothing we can do. We've been redeemed. We're no longer held hostage to sin. And we're dead to sin. As it says in Romans 6, Verses 1 and 2, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
So this free grace of Christ, lest we forget, is not an enticement to sin, but rather a call to sanctification. We're dead to sin, and we're enabled by the Holy Spirit's power to live lives free from sin's power. To continue in sin as an unbroken pattern might imply that one has not truly died to sin. And as it also goes on to say in Romans 6.18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now, as a slave of righteousness, we've exchanged one master for another. We're now conformed to God's will and God's purpose. We've explained, exchanged one form of slavery for another. Fourthly, the resurrection is necessary for the efficacy of our faith. And this is really the, the point where I'm going to spend most of the rest of my time. Because when you talk about the efficacy of our faith and what we have through our faith, there's so much to that. There's so many implications. For example, we have remission of sins. Uh, Acts 10.43 says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Those that trust in him and rely on him receive forgiveness of sins. If you would like to read the fifth gospel, there's a chief Old Testament prophecy that outlines the gospel beautifully in Isaiah 53. Maybe some of you have read it before. And I'm reading uh, a verse. I read a verse that was from the part of Acts where Peter is preaching to Cornelius' household. And you notice that he's giving him a real simple gospel. He's not appealing to any kind of highfalutin Christology that only a, a well-trained theologian would talk about. He, he's proclaiming it in its simplest form. Jesus, his death, his life, and his resurrection. Through faith, um, Romans 3.25 says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So publicly, Jesus died for our sins as a sacrifice to, to satisfy God's wrath. And while the, while the Father could have easily, you know, punished us, he could have sought retribution, in his great love, he passed over us and he withheld punishment and he put that wrath on his only son instead. Of course, we have justification Acts 13.39 tells us, And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed, through the law of Moses. So we're not justified by the law of Moses, that Old Testament law, but by the atoning death of Christ. As we acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, we have a legal standing. That's what justification is, a legal standing that declares us free of the guilt of sin. God's righteousness is graciously credited to the believer and we are brought into a right standing with him. Romans 3, 21 through 28 talks about this also. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. 
for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Faith only, no works. Moreover, as a result of the efficacy of our faith, which is necessary as a result of the resurrection, um, we have, of course, sanctification. Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 14, and it says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which he can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So no longer do we have to have a priest that's always standing, that's always sacrificing. Jesus has paid it all uh, once and for all. And we have been sanctified and set apart and made holy. And sanctification, yes, it is a process that you go through, but it's also a position at the moment of, of justification. You are set apart to be made holy. And uh, it, is a pro- it is a position that one attains upon conversion. And it is his sacrifice that once for all removes sin. And we continue to be perpetually sanctified until we've been perfected spiritually in our glorified state. As a result of the faith, we have a spiritual light. John 12, 46 tells us, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So that means we no longer abide in darkness as Jesus has come into the world for an anchor, somebody whom we can place our hope in and rely upon gospel truth. Um, This is something that should comfort us. As believers in Christ, we need no longer abide in darkness. We have spiritual life as a result of this faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So in that supreme act of love, Jesus dies for our sins, and we have have shared in Christ's crucifixion. That means that we've died to our old self, and um, once you're saved, you die to your old self, and you have new life in Christ. Christ indwells you, and uh, you have life anew and a new nature. You're completely following, relying on, and trusting in him. Of course, we have eternal life as a result of this faith. John three fifteen and 16, that well-known verse described this perfectly. And I'm going to have all of you recite this one. I'll start us off with uh, verse 15. It says, so that whoever believes in him will, will have eternal life for... Amen. God greatly loved the world that he gave his only son. We have eternal life through faith in Christ. After our physical death comes and we'll be in our glorified state and the work of salvation has been brought to completion, we will live with him forever. Our adoption, 
As a result of that faith, we have adoption in Christ. And Galatians 3.26 talks about this. It says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That means we have been spiritually transformed, renewed, sanctified, and we become God's spiritual children, reborn from above. And if you're not in God's family, you're in Satan's family. We're set apart for his purpose with full rights and privileges that come with being his child. Uh, John 1.12 further echoes this in that opening chapter of the Gospel of John. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So that's a further expansion and further testament to the fact that we are adopted when we become children of God with full rights and privileges that any child would have. And one of the big ones, and I think that a lot of times we as Christians take this for granted, is our access to God, our access to the creator of the universe. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So we've been acquitted of sin. We've been declared blameless before God. By faith, we have access to the God of the universe. This hope that we speak of is not a, well, I really hope, but there's no guarantee. It's a hope you can bank on. It's a hope that is certain. We know we'll share in the glory of God because Christ has secured it for us. And we do sometimes take this for granted. Um, it's interesting that we, we sometimes become enamored by having access to beings other than the God of the universe. Uh, we become enamored by, you know, for example, having access to that high-level manager that can get us that great job inside of a company. We're always impressed by someone else's networks. We wish that, boy, if I only had that guy's contacts in my network, it would be terrific. Uh, we place our hope in having access to a key person, a key contact that can get what we want. And we forget that uh, none of that really matters because you have the greatest contact in your network of all. Personal, unfiltered access to the God of the universe that's going to work out everything in his plan for your good and your benefit. So you need not worry about whether or not you have access to so-and-so because you already have access to the man that can really make it happen, the Lord God above. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12 says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. And keep in mind, when it comes to this access, it means we have sufficient courage to freely and openly approach God through Christ, which means that there should never be a part of your life in which you shouldn't approach the throne of grace. No subject off limits, no concern for which you cannot go before the Lord God and express. And finally, we have, as a result of this faith, the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 1.13 says, In him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So after Jesus resurrected and ascended, he promised he'd send the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer, securing and preserving our salvation. And not only does the Spirit seal us, but he does so much more. If you look in John fourteen twenty six, it says that the Holy Spirit is the helper. It says here, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he's our helper. He's our teacher. First Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So if you want to understand your Bible, you want to understand doctrine, the truths about the gospel, um, help when you want to read your word, it's the Holy Spirit that gives it to you. He's our helper. He's our teacher. Finally, let's not forget that we have hope as a result of the resurrection. This is not all there is. He who began a good work in you will finish it. And I think I just want to end with this verse. I think this is a fitting conclusion. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the uh, opportunity to just be here to ponder the necessity of the resurrections and its implication for our life. I pray, Lord, that we would never take the resurrection for granted, that we would always stop and meditate on its necessity and the implications that the resurrection has for all of our lives in Christ. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.